Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. As we continue looking at what has rightly been called the Hall of Faith, this morning we'll be looking at Hebrews 11, verse 7. Hebrews 11, verse 7, and considering faith amid the flood. Hebrews 11, verse 7, give attention to God's holy word. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Let us pray. Almighty God, your word is true from everlasting to everlasting world without end. And yet our hearts are such, O Lord, that we do not receive your word unless you, by the work of your Spirit, testify by and with that word in our hearts. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would grant us your Spirit now during this time of preaching, that we might hear your word as it is in truth, not the word of men, but the word of God. And we pray that you would do all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it probably goes without saying, but floods are disorienting. Perhaps you've been through a flood, perhaps you've lived in a state that gets flooded or near the coastline, and when the floodwaters come in, all the roads are covered, no travel can happen except very precariously and perhaps by boat, and when the floods come, it's often very difficult to see past the flood, because the great reality when you're in the middle of a flood is water. Water is a fascinating element. It's very interesting in uh, the Psalms and in the book of Job, that the waters of the oceans are described as a rebellious, proud force that is constantly trying to overwhelm the earth. And it is by God's power alone that he draws a line on the coast and says, this is where your proud waves will stop. So in reality, the waters of the oceans, the only reason they don't flood the entire earth again is not because of a law of nature. It's not because it's the way things are. It's because God's word keeps them where they are. Flood, water are very dangerous and disorienting things. In Noah's day, there were, of course, two floods. Now, we know about the flood of God's judgment that he promised and predicted and revealed to Noah. But before that flood of judgment, that flood of water, Noah was living in the midst of a flood. He was living in the midst of a flood of wickedness. You go back and read Genesis chapter 6, and it says that the entire earth was filled with violence. It's very interesting in that passage that as Moses describes the violence, it was violence of murder, the shedding of blood. And so the picture that Moses gives us is that Noah was living in the midst of a wicked generation and there was a flood of the blood of men everywhere, covering everything and disorienting and corrupting God's creation. There was a flood of wickedness all over the earth in Noah's time. And then, of course, God tells Noah, I'm going to set a flood of judgment to wipe all this away. Think of today. In many ways, we live in the midst of a flood. Not a flood of water, not a flood of judgment at this point, but a flood of wickedness. You look around you, in the world around you, and what do you see? Bloodshed, deception, wickedness, arrogance, pride, blasphemy. 
a flood of wickedness everywhere around us. And it can be hard to get your bearings in the midst of a flood. It can be hard to see what way to go. It's this reality. Not only the flood of wickedness that we live in, but also the reality that a flood of judgment is coming. And that all the things which we can see with our eyes will be done away with. It is for this reason, among many, that we walk by faith and not by sight. And the example of Noah that the author brings up to us here in verse 7 is an example of this. A man living in the midst of the flood that according to everything he sees, there is no hope and no way out. But Noah walks by faith to the salvation of his soul. Specifically, what we're going to see in verse 7 is that faith sees beyond the flood. Brothers and sisters, there is a world and a life after the flood. But you can't see it while you're drowning. You have to see it by faith. What we learn is that faith sees beyond the flood and labors to enter into salvation. Faith sees beyond the flood and labors to enter into salvation. Obviously, we're only looking at one verse this morning, but it is a very full verse. It is a very meaty verse. And we're going to notice three things in this verse. First is the content of faith. The content of faith. Second are the works of faith. And then finally, the reward of faith. The content of faith, the works of faith, and the reward of faith. And so we begin in verse 7 with the content of faith. Very important thing to keep in mind about saving faith. Saving faith is not just a feeling. Saving faith is not an emotion. Saving faith has a certain content. There are certain truths that saving faith apprehends and believes to be true and places all of its confidence in. There are certain truths that you can deny, and you will cease to be a Christian. There are certain truths, even in our day, that some who are prominent in the Reformed world are actively denying, proving they don't have the right content. And if you don't have the right content, you don't have saving faith. What we see here in verse 7, Noah has the right content. First, he's confronted with the Word of God. Notice what it says. It says that by faith, Noah, being divinely warned. Now, this is a very interesting word in Greek. This this verse is a very dense verse, and the author uses two very unique words in this verse to get his point across. The word that he uses here for divinely warned is actually one word. And it's a word that refers to doing public business. It's a word that refers to putting out public notices. The word is most often used, especially when you're speaking about kings and magistrates, is when they hold court and the kingdom gathers in front of them and the king puts forward his judgments. It's a very unique word, and that's the word that's used here. So when he says that Noah was divinely warned, what he's saying is that when God revealed to Noah his plans, it is as if God called Noah up into his throne room. God came down to Noah and held court and gave his proclamation. The world is full of wickedness. I'm going to send a flood, build the ark. Noah was divinely warned. This, of course, is one of the ways 
that the word of God came in times past. If you read the Old Testament and even the beginning parts of the New Testament, like we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, gifts of tongues, wisdom, knowledge, prophecy, there were various ways that the word of God came in times of old. The book of Hebrews itself, if you turn to chapter 1, speaks of how the Word of God came in times past. This episode with Noah is one of those times, one of those ways. Hebrews 1.1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. And so the first thing we need to recognize about Noah's faith is that it was produced and it was focused on the revelation of God. God's special revelation of his plan for salvation. That's what Noah is being confronted with. That's what Noah was divinely warned about. God's special revelation. Now for us in our day, The scriptures are God's special revelation to us. God does not speak in dreams and visions anymore. God does not speak through prophets anymore. God does not speak through the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy or the word of wisdom or the gift of knowledge anymore. He's given us the Holy Scriptures. Now, I want you to learn something from Noah's example here about saving faith. We we need to understand that the Holy Scriptures are a precious gift that God has given to us. The Holy Scriptures are not an ordinary book. The Holy Scriptures are not the same thing as an ancient history. That's not how we approach these things. But we should approach the Holy Scriptures as God's royal decree, his divine warning that there are things you cannot see which will come to pass. Therefore, prepare. The purpose of the Scriptures is to lead us to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. To use them for anything less than that is to abuse them. That is what the Scriptures are given for. And Noah was divinely warned. Notice also he's, he's divinely warned of things not yet seen. Very important aspect. Or I should say, very important content in saving faith. Noah was warned about things that had never happened before. He was warned about things that nobody had experienced. He was warned about things that eye had not seen and ear had not heard. He was warned of things not seen. Now in the context, obviously, this is referring to the flood of waters that God predicted he would send in Noah's day. But this this idea, things not yet seen, it can be applied more broadly to the final judgment The final judgment, uh, the, the, the flood, was a type of the final judgment. Turn to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. Second Peter 3, verses 5 through 7. And Peter, in this, in this context, is, is encouraging the church that he's writing to to not lose faith. Don't listen to the scoffers. Don't listen to those who deny the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins, well, he, he continues in verse uh, 4, starting in verse 4. What do the scoffers say? Well, they say that where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. 
What are they saying? They're saying Christ is not coming because we haven't seen him come. They're saying you can't prove Christ is coming because I don't see the evidence. Exactly the opposite of what Noah was warned about. He was warned of things that were not yet seen. Look at what Peter says next, verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And so you see how Peter uses the flood of Noah as a type of the final judgment, the final return of Christ. And this is the warning of the Word of God. Especially in the context of Noah and especially in our context, this is the great thing that nobody has seen. This is the great reality of history that there is no evidence for. You cannot look in the past of history, you cannot look into archaeology, you cannot look into science, philosophy, biology, pick your poison. There is nothing in this created world that you can see which proves Christ is returning except the Word of God. God Himself has warned mankind, I am returning, and when I return... I will judge the world. This is why, brothers and sisters, every creed of the church, every confession of the church includes the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is part of the gospel promise, it is part of the divine warning, and it is one of the truths that our faith believes and rests upon. It is not an optional doctrine. It is not something we can take or leave as we see fit. The second coming of Christ is happening. This is also why when we talk about eschatology, which means the end times, what is going to happen at the end of days, this is why the church has not taken a position among premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. Because at a very fundamental level, it doesn't matter which of those millennial schools you pick. I'm not speaking about dispensationalism. That's a different ball of wax. There is a type of premillennialism that's not dispensational that has a historic precedent in Orthodox churches. What I am saying is that whether you are pre-mill, post-mill, or amill, the fundamental thing is that Christ is returning. Are you ready for it? The fundamental thing is that Christ is coming to judge the world. When, where, and how doesn't matter. The reality is what matters. And this is what is revealed to Noah. This is what is revealed to him uh, and that he receives by faith. Returning now to Hebrews eleven seven. The author says that this was by faith. Notice it was by faith he was divinely warned of things not yet seen. This is the content of his faith. But it was by faith that he was warned of these things. <coughs> Westminster Confession speaks about how the Word of God comes to us and the persuasion that convinces us that these things are true. Westminster Confession 1, paragraph 5, says this. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God, 
the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Let me summarize what they're saying. There are plenty of things you can see about the Bible that prove it to be the Word of God. There are plenty of things you can look at. The testimony of the church, the grandeur of the literary style, the power that it has to overturn kingdoms, the history of the Bible. There's all kinds of arguments and evidence that you could pile up and look at that prove this is the Word of God. But that is not saving faith. That will not save you. This pile of evidence will not give you sight beyond the flood. The only thing that will save you is the testimony of God. Look at what it says next. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, Paul the Apostle said when he came preaching the gospel to the Corinthians, he said, I did not come with human wisdom, but I came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the faith that's being talked about with Noah. He was warned of things not seen. How can you be convinced of this? Only by the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Only by the power of the Spirit of God giving him saving faith and persuading him that this is God's truth. It could be no other way, could it? God is warning him of things never before seen. God is warning him of things that no one had experienced. A worldwide flood? You're crazy, Noah. That's not going to happen. That's never happened in the past. God says it's going to happen. Think furthermore about the promises that Scripture gives you as a Christian. Primarily, the promise of life after death. None of you have experienced death. You've seen loved ones die. Some of you have buried parents. Some of you have buried children. Some of you have buried friends. But none of you have personally seen death with your own experience. God promises you to raise you up after the death of your body. How are you going to be convinced of that? How are you going to be persuaded of a promise relating to something you have never seen? Only by faith and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. This is the faith that Noah has. God warns him of things not seen. And Noah, by faith, believes. I mentioned earlier from Second uh, Peter 3 that the flood of Noah, which is the particular thing Noah was shown, that is a type of the final judgment. And God has to reveal this to Noah. Judgment is coming across the whole world. Likewise for us, the Scriptures warn us of the second coming of Christ, which is a judgment that will not be with water, but with fire. Turn back to 2 Peter again. Peter goes on to describe this final judgment. Picking it up in verse 8, 2 Peter 3, verse 8. He's encouraging the believers, don't lose heart, don't be impatient, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night 
in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Can you imagine this? The mountains and the hills will be on fire. Everything that you have seen in your whole life will be flaming before you. The sun, moon, and stars will come crashing down. The heavens will be opened like a curtain. And Christ, the glorious one, will appear. This is what is happening. This is truer than anything you have ever seen. Continue reading. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Your homes, your cars, your clothes, your money, your banks, your governments, your farms, your trees, your oceans will boil with fervent heat. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This is why the church confesses the second coming of Christ. Not because we need to know the details of when, where, and how. Not because we need to know if the things described in Revelation are Apache helicopters or Chinook helicopters. The reason we confess the second coming of Christ is because this is a spur to our godliness. It is a goad to grow in Christ. That's where Peter goes with this. What manner of persons ought you to be? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Certainly the scriptures warn us of things not yet seen. Things that we cannot imagine. But things that will happen nonetheless. Now as I said, and as Noah is warned, he's warned of things that have not ever been seen. And he's persuaded of them. He's fully convinced that this is true. Because as God calls him into his royal courtyard and tells him, this is what I'm doing, Noah by faith says, yep, that's what's going to happen. I need to prepare accordingly. We need to d distinguish in our minds the difference between a probable faith and saving faith. Saving faith rests upon the testimony of God alone. Found in the Holy Scriptures and verified by the witness of the Holy Spirit. That is saving faith. That's the kind of faith that enabled martyrs to die without denying their Lord. That's the kind of faith that enabled Christ to die on the cross. That's the kind of faith that enables you and I to continue in the Christian life when things look hopeless. It's based on the testimony of God alone. A probable faith or a faith that will not save is a faith that is based on the testimony of men. It's a faith that uh, some who are raised in the church have. Well, I go to church because daddy went to church. I read the Bible because that's what our family does. We read the Bible. You see how this is based on the testimony of men, daddy, family. But the faith that saves must be a faith that is your own based on the testimony of God, not on the testimony of men. Well, Noah has this saving faith. He's divinely warned of these things not yet seen. This faith then produces certain works. Now, what I mean by works is probably maybe better described as fruits. The fruits of this saving faith are evident 
in Noah's life. There's three kinds of fruits that Noah displays. Internal, external, and societal. Internal, external, and societal. The first fruit that he displays is that he's moved by a godly fear. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. This is the second very unique word that the author uses in this verse. This word, in fact, only occurs two times in the whole Bible. Uh, The other place that this occurs is in Acts 23.10. Acts 23.10, the centurion sees the situation where the Pharisees are ready to rip Paul into pieces. And it says that the centurion, afraid that they are going to rip Paul into pieces, takes Paul into custody. The word means to understand a situation accurately. Think about the centurion. The Jewish mob is going crazy. Paul is in the midst, and he looks at this situation and says, that man's going to get ripped limb from limb. He understands the situation rightly. He sees what's going on and receives it in the right manner. Uh, Maybe a better way to translate this word is not godly fear, but sobriety. The word literally means to be sober-minded about a situation. In this context, however, fear is a good translation. The Lord said, I'm sending a flood of waters. Godly fear is the right response to that. It's to receive the situation accurately. It's to be sober-minded. This is an internal quality of saving faith. This is one of our uh, dispositional or perhaps emotional responses. When saving faith takes hold of our heart, we get serious about the things of God. We become sober-minded about the things of the gospel. We, We recognize the weightiness of the judgment to come and the weight of glory that Christ has promised to those that love him. We recognize that when Christ comes... His glory will fully compensate for whatever we endure in this life. It makes us sober-minded. A couple of descriptions of this in Job 37.1. Job 37.1, Elihu is speaking, and he describes it this way. Job 37.1, he's speaking about God coming in judgment. And he says, At this also my heart trembles and leaps from from its place. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He sends it forth under the whole heaven, his lightnings to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain them when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. Notice that he's describing God's special revelation. When God thunders with his voice, Elihu's heart trembles and leaps from its place. Likewise, in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit who trembles at my word. And so Noah was moved with godly fear. Next, we see the external fruits of faith. Noah's divinely warned of things not seen. He's moved with his sobriety and a godly fear. And then he builds the ark. He builds the ark for one primary reason. 
Because God commanded it. God revealed to him, I'm sending a flood, build this ark. This is what you need to do. Be focused on building the ark. Secondly, if you consider the ark, the thing that God commanded him was uniquely adapted to survive the judgment. The judgment is going to be a flood of waters. Therefore, build this wooden ship. It's the one thing that will survive in a flood of waters. That's what God commanded him to do. Finally, or I should say, uh, in addition, Noah, in building the ark, moved with godly fear, is a type of Christ. We noticed this when we looked at the Noah passage during the Genesis series. But just recognize at this point, Noah is a type of Christ in that Noah and Christ construct the vessel of salvation. Noah builds the ark. All those within the ark will be saved. Christ builds the church. All those within the church will be saved. Matthew 16, Christ tells the apostles, I will build my church. Other places in the Gospels describe Christ as the one who is greater than Solomon. Well, Solomon is famously known as the builder of God's house. If Noah is a type of Christ, then the ark is a type of the church. It functions this way in Scripture. The ark is, as it were, the vessel of salvation. If you get inside the ark, you'll be saved. If you stay outside the ark, you won't be saved. And so the ark is a type of church. A couple things to notice to prove this. First, if you go back and look at Genesis 6, the ratio of length, width, and height for the ark, the ratio of those uh, dimensions, same ratio as the tabernacle and the temple. They're all geometrically the same shape as far as the ratios go. In addition to this, turn to Ephesians chapter 3, the great prayer that Elder Schallenberger uh, read from, one of my favorite passages in all of Paul's writing. Notice that as Paul is describing the church in that prayer, Ephesians 3.18. Ephesians 3.18, Paul says that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the width, length, depth, and height? Architectural ratios. And he prays this prayer for the church. Look at verse 20, uh, t- uh, 21. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. If you'd like to talk more about that line of argument, please see me after. Um, but the ratios are the same, and so the ark is a type of church. Also, 2 Peter 3, uh, pardon me, 1 Peter 3, 20 and 22. Baptism is the sign of those who belong to the ark and the church. You ever think about that? Look at what he says in verse 20. At the end of verse uh, 20. When the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now how does Peter cash this out? There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter is saying. Those who were in the ark were saved through water. We who are in the church are saved through the waters of baptism. And so being saved through water marks those who belong in the ark, and it marks those who belong in the church. The ark is a type of the church. Now consider, 
returning to Hebrews 11.7. Noah is commanded to build the ark in preparation for an event that has never been seen before, that has never happened before in human history. And if you look at his ages, the ages of Noah before and after the flood, he's, he is probably laboring on this for 100 years. From his 500th year to his 600th year, it's a 100-year time span where nothing is happening. But Noah is laboring away with his sons. This has to be the work of faith. The building of the ark was a work of of faith. That is the only way you would endure in doing something like that. Because as Noah's building the ark, it serves only one purpose, to deliver you from the flood, which will only happen at one point in history. That's the only purpose for this thing. And so Noah builds in faith. Likewise, your labor in the church has to be a labor of faith. Your contributions to the church, your prayers for the church, your love for the saints, officers, your labor in the church has to be a labor of faith. Because if you labor according to what your eyes see, you will find plenty of reasons to give up the project. Noah probably had plenty of reasons to give up the project. He's laboring on this giant thing, being mocked by the world around him, with no results coming from his labor, until finally God's word comes to pass. Work in the church is a work of faith. The church is a unique institution. It's not like other institutions in the world. It's not like the civil government. It's not like your family. It's not a business. The church is the ark of salvation that serves only one purpose, to deliver those who are a part of it from the judgment of fire. And that's why we labor and strive. That's why. Because as Paul says, we believe in the living God. And so Noah builds in faith. Uh, just, a, just a brief comment here about how we're supposed to use the ark narrative and the narrative of Noah. I think with, with a lot of things in the Old Testament, we can, we can go off track with, with how we use these things. You, you see this in our culture today when everyone wants to make a movie about a Bible story. Now, at one level, I, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but we do have to be careful that we don't take the things of Scripture, which reveal things we cannot see, and turn them into things we can see. The purpose of the Scriptures is to lead us to Christ. And we err gravely when we take some of the stories of the Old Testament and turn them into things to delight the eye. It is my opinion, it's my opinion, based on this, I believe the Ark Encounter in Kentucky is a bit misguided. The, the whole effort and endeavor to build a scale model of the ark misses the point of the ark narrative, I think. And it's for a lot of these reasons here. The narrative of the ark is meant to lead us to Christ. It's not meant for us to build a theme park around a Bible story. That's my opinion. Do with it as you wish. But the general point is that in all of Scripture, the purpose is to bring us to Christ. And as we use the Scriptures in that way, we will be doing the work of faith. Well, the final fruit of faith is societally, and I'll be much briefer on this point. Uh, notice that Noah, being divinely warned, moved with godly fear, he prepared an ark, and he saved his household and condemned the world. Notice that the household was saved by entering the ark. 
They were part of Noah's household first, and then they entered the ark along with him. We could make an argument here for infant baptism, but I will spare you for the sake of time. But notice, Noah's household is saved because Noah is saved. Um, Secondly, we need to distinguish here between the church and the family. They are two distinct institutions, and they are not the same thing. The church is a family, but it's the family of God. Your family is a little church, so to speak, but it is not the same thing as the church. The church is the ark of salvation, and there is room enough for families to enter into it. Likewise with Noah. He also condemns the world. You see this in our membership vows. Whenever people take their membership vows, they give a vow to uh, serve God, forsake the devil, forsake the world, and mortify their flesh. Well, Noah condemns the world by building this ark. To flee to Christ for salvation means to forsake the world and to condemn it as doomed. You cannot have one foot in the ark and one foot in the world when the waters come. You know, one time I I did some canoeing in northern Minnesota, and I was teaching a younger younger fellow on our group. He was not very experienced in using canoes, and I learned through experience how inexperienced he was. We were on the bank, and there was a rocky shore, and uh, he was getting in the boat. He got in the front of the boat, and I was getting ready to get in the back, and I had one foot on the rocks and one foot in the canoe, and this young man really didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know how to keep it close to shore so I could get in, so slowly and surely, the rocks and the vessels were drifting apart, and eventually I ended up in the lake. You cannot have one foot on land and one foot in the boat when the waters come. Likewise with salvation. You cannot have one foot in the church and one foot in the world when the floodwaters come. This is why I I, I keep saying these things because I want to encourage you to grow in your holiness and in your faith in Christ. Peter says it. Christ says it all throughout the Gospels. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. What does that mean? You don't know when it's going to happen. The thief doesn't tell you when he's going to rob your house. He comes when you least expect it. Likewise, we need to be ready for Christ's return. Well, finally, what is the reward of faith? The reward of faith is nothing less than righteousness. Being declared right in God's sight. That's the reward of faith. The author says it this way. He became an heir of the righteousness which is according to to faith. The gift of righteousness can only come by faith as an inheritance. Notice he says that Noah became an heir of the righteousness of faith. To be an heir means that you receive a, uh, you receive a wealthy gift, not because of anything that you have done, but because of your forefathers giving it to you. The only reason that you get that gift is because you're the heir. You have been appointed to receive, not because you're worthy of it, not because you deserve it, but because your father has chosen to give it to you. Likewise, that's what the gift of righteousness is. It is given to us not because we deserve it, not because we're worthy of it, but because God the Father has chosen to give it to you through Christ by faith. As I mentioned before, this could be no other way. As Paul the Apostle says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law comes and condemns all men so that all mouths may be shut and all the world may stand guilty before God so that God can freely forgive sinners through the gospel of Christ. Righteousness comes in no other way except by believing the promise. Believing the promise of righteousness is also believing in something that you have not seen. 
is believing in something that you have not experienced right now. Because what is the hope of being declared righteous in God's sight? We have peace of conscience today. That's nice. We, we enjoy uh, better understanding in our minds. That's also nice. But the ultimate hope of righteousness is that when Christ returns to condemn the world, he will look at you and say, righteous. Blessed are you. Enter into the kingdom I have prepared for you. You will be spared. That is the hope of righteousness when Christ returns. None of us have seen that. And so we have to believe the promise and trust in him. Brothers and sisters, we live in very flooded times. Wickedness is all around us. The things we have taken for granted are even at this moment being shaken by God's judgment upon this wicked generation. There is only one place to look. God's promises in the gospel. The revelation of his plan of salvation in the Holy Scriptures. That is the only place for us to look to find salvation and to endure in this life. Remember the author to Hebrews, his broader point in chapter 11 is to encourage the people. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Believe in God's promises. Bring forth the fruits of faith, and you will inherit the reward of faith, righteousness forevermore. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray, O Lord, that you would work in us true saving faith. We might be found worthy at his coming to inherit the kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world. We ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.